morning. Happy Father's Day, guys. I've taught on a lot of Father's Day, and I've taught a lot of Mother's Day and other holidays, and you sort of, you're, you're flipping the coin to say, do I speak directly to the holiday, or do I just include it as a passing reference? And I'm sort of speaking to the holiday Father's Day this morning, and I'll explain that. It is Father's Day, and we'll talk about fathering a little bit, but we'll actually talk a little bit wider than just fathering to talk about God's view of masculinity, of God's view of manly men. And this song was a great introduction. If you believe, as I do, that Jesus Christ on the earth was God incarnate, and in that sense he represented all of humanity, men and women, but he was also uniquely a man on earth. And so you've got God clothed in not only humanity, but in maleness. And so ultimately, we could probably make a pretty good case that if we want to look at a cue for our masculinity, what's God's view of a manly man, then probably the Lord Jesus is a pretty good place to start. And that's what we'll do this morning. So this will have references for men as fathers, certainly. It'll speak more broadly than that. Too, though, to all of us, whether we're fathers or not, especially to the guys, uh, but also to the gals. And I, I hope, a um, couple thoughts, sort of disclaimers. You know, if you teach on Father's Day and you're sort of speaking in praise of fathers, you know that in your audience there are people who grew up with fathers who are not Christ-like examples of masculinity. And so if, if we stand here and we simply praise fathers, you may feel like it's salt rubbed in a womb. My dad didn't look like that. Or my, the males, the men in my life that I grew up with, they didn't look like what you're talking about. If that's the case for you, don't let that be salt in the womb this morning, but rather choose to see that God means and has always meant for men, for the masculine element of humanity to be a blessing to the ladies and to each other on the earth so that as we talk about manhood and God's kind of godly masculinity, hopefully, if you've not experienced it in the past, it can be a way of raising your eyes a little higher. Forgive those folks in the past for sure, but raise your eyes a little higher to see the ways in which God has always meant for you to be blessed by men in your life. And ultimately, of course, the way God as Father, the ultimate masculine figure, means to bless you as well. So if you're a man, this has particular application. If you're a dad, there will be some additional. But even if you're not of the male gender, hopefully there will still be some benefit for you this morning. Before we get into a list of things that um, reflect Jesus' kind of masculinity, what his manhood uniquely looked like, I want to address a few things that his masculinity did not look like. Okay, You know, in any culture, we sort of develop caricatures of what a thing is or should be. And so if you live in the United States, your view of what a man's man looks like has been affected, no doubt, by the culture around us. So just some disclaimers before we talk about Christ's kind of masculinity, some disclaimers as to some things it did not look like. By the way, if, you, if your masculinity embraces these things, includes these, that's fine. But not all men will have these avenues, if you will, of masculinity. So, for instance, Jesus was not physically an athletic superstar, and he was not what people called handsome. 
You know, in our culture, if you're thinking of the epitome of masculinity, you might have a narrow-waisted, bulging bicep, broad shoulders, NFL football player, NBA basketball player, or World Cup soccer guy. I saw some pretty mean torsos on the World Cup soccer guys yesterday. Uh, But you know, when you read about Christ in the Old Testament, it's clear that he was not physically attractive. There was nothing about his physique that other men would have said, man, there's a man's man. So for instance, in Isaiah 53, 2, when Isaiah was prophesying down the quarters of time before Jesus was born, but he was describing what the Messiah would look like, he said he has no form or majesty that we should look upon him, no appearance that we should be attracted to him. So here in the States, if we think of a man's man, we generally think of some burly, husky, strong, big guy. Jesus probably did not fit this model at all and not particularly handsome. No physical appearance that people were naturally drawn to him based on his appearance. Not at all. So you don't have to be a burly physique to represent God's kind of masculinity. Jesus did not. Another area Jesus didn't represent, uh, maybe some version of masculinity would be in this arena of wealth. We talked about riches and wealth a week ago. You know, in our culture, uh, money's a big deal, and, and we have a lot of it. And so there's a sense in which oftentimes a man who can succeed in the sport, if you will, of making money can get wealth, amass wealth, there's a sense in which that's perceived as power, and it is a kind of power. And so men who can get, accrue, amass, hold on to, make a lot of money are often esteemed as manly. And of course, in this arena, Jesus was not manly either. If that's our criteria, Christ was not masculine because he was never more than poor. You know, you think of his parents and his upbringing, poverty. When they go to the temple, they offer the cheapest sacrifice you could when he's taken to the temple as a young boy. Or growing up, he's a carpenter. Um, in his ministry years, think he's, he's uh, supported by women who follow him. He's put up by his friends. He doesn't have money. Jesus was never wealthy. So he could never have reflected masculinity if we see it as a way in which I'm competing in the arena of life and I'm amassing wealth as a sign of my power. Jesus didn't have that kind of masculinity, if you will. Another uh, thing that Jesus wasn't related to perhaps what our view of, of maleness or manhood might look like, this may, may sound a little odd, but Jesus was not a chick magnet. He was not a ladies' man. So that women were definitely drawn to Christ, and you see that in the Gospels, but I think it was because of his moral qualities, and it was because of the way in which he, as a Jewish rabbi, was was stepping down, as it were, to include them. And we'll talk about this in a little bit. But think of this. Jesus, the, the, the most masculine version of God's idea of manhood on the earth, never had sex. Never had sex. So if you're a young guy or you're a single guy all your life, you don't have to question your masculinity if you're not sleeping around. This is a good thing. Jesus, if masculinity is tied specifically to the sex act, Jesus was not masculine. And of course, he was the ultimate masculine male. So to the degree that especially our culture, you know, our sex-crazed culture ties a view of masculinity to sleeping around or sex, it doesn't exist in God's mind specifically to be masculine or God's version of a man's man is not tied to having sex. Jesus didn't. 
And he's the epitome of masculinity. Another thing Jesus wasn't is uh, he wasn't boastful. You know, uh, thinking of our sports crazed, Matt, World Cup soccer kind of a, of a world a scenario right now. He was not a chest-thumping, braggadocia kind of a guy. You know, you don't see this at all. Now, he had power, and we'll talk about this again in just a minute. Jesus had power, and if somebody was going to thump his chest and say, look at me, he could have done that, but, but he doesn't. You know, and you see, uh, we'll talk about the incarnation in a minute, but in the incarnation, power puts on meekness. You know, power steps out of the realm of power, if you will, sets power aside. No chest thumping, no, no pride, no... Uh, None of that kind of self-exaltation that we often associate with a man's kind of man. Jesus doesn't have any of those. So if masculinity in our cultural context is tied to these things, many of us would be in trouble. Happily, God's version of masculinity is not tied to these things. If you have a great physique and you're handsome and you're wealthy and you're married with a great sex life, that's all good. But that does not equate to God's version of masculinity. So there's many things that... God's version of a man's man does not necessarily incorporate that our culture typically does, and we may as well. So putting those things behind us and moving on to the ways in which Christ put on not just our humanity, but thinking specifically this morning about the masculine version of that. The first thing that I would say is Jesus' masculinity was essentially displayed through humility. His masculinity, his strength was displayed primarily through humility. Um, Related to humility, two things. Normally when I use the term humility, I'm simply saying that a person has a right apprehension of who they are and who they're not. Humility generally just means knowing what we are and what we're not. In this way this morning, though, I mean the willingness to take the low place. The willingness, even if I'm not the lowest member there, to take the low place. And in this, Christ's masculinity was expressed in spades through humility. In Philippians 2, verses 7 through 8, this is the key New Testament passage on this uh, emptying of Christ, this leaving deity and all its privileges and prerogatives behind in heaven when he comes down and takes on our humanity. And it says there's this step-by-step humility you see in Philippians 2. So it says Christ came to earth from heaven. That was a step down. And then when he came to the earth, he not only became a man like one of us, but he took a step down further to become, it says, a servant of servants or a bond slave, the lowest form of servant. And then it says he took another step down when he became sin for us on the cross because he was seen as the vilest or lowest form of criminal. So Christ's masculine strength, if you will, was displayed through this process of humility over and over and over, being willing to take the low place both to honor his Father and to bless us. So over and over again, Christ's masculinity is expressed through humility. That humility also took the form of submission. Uh, Jesus, you know, when he comes to the earth, he's, he talks about himself, and he does say who he is and who he isn't. But he's always framing what he does in context to what his father wants him to do. So even though he's the king of kings and lord of lords, he sees all of his life as a man on the earth, as lived in humble submission to another, to his father. So, for instance, in John 4.34, Jesus says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. 
The disciples were worried he hadn't eaten and he needed a drink. And he says, guys, don't worry. My whole life is characterized. I'm fed. I'm encouraged. I'm built up simply by doing the will of my father. That's what my life is geared towards. He says something quite similar in John eight twenty nine, where he says, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. I always do the things that are pleasing to my father. I'm not here to please myself. And last, in Mark 10.45, the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So Jesus was no maverick. You know, he didn't come as the lone ranger. Deity puts on humanity in the form of a man and then lives the rest of his life on the earth in submission to, humble submission to his Father and says, everything I do, I'm doing for someone else. Total humility, this willingness to take the lowest place, even though he didn't have to. So masculine strength expressed through humility primarily. The second way that uh, Jesus' masculinity specifically was displayed, uh, he was a leader, but his leadership was for the benefit of others. And think of this. I'm not going to make the case, I'm not going to make the theological, biblical case that men are called to lead, though they are. And I assume most of you buy into that if you're here this morning. If you start from Genesis 1 on, Adam is the first element of humanity created. He's the head of the human race. And that's why when we talk about mankind's sin in Romans, uh, Romans doesn't say Eve sinned though she sinned first, it says Adam sinned because Adam was head of the human race. He was the leader. And when you read in Genesis 3, the curse, Adam is cursed in the work of the field. Why is that? Because Adam was the leader with the, the responsibility to provide for his family and to protect his family. And so men are called to this specifically, to this role of leadership. And so Jesus comes as a man, and he's also a leader, though it's not just in the form of a small family. He was the head of his family after his dad Joseph would have died. He would have had that role too. But Jesus in his leadership, you see him exercising it on one hand, and yet doing so in a way very specifically geared towards using his leadership as a method of serving those around him. So it was a servant leadership. It wasn't a leadership for his own benefit. It was for the sake of others. In John 13, 13 through 15, this was the night of the Last Supper, and Jesus is sort of entrusting to his men all those last things that he wanted to commit to them before he takes off, before he's crucified. And he says there, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for I am. I am the leader. I am the teacher. I am the Lord. In Jewish society, this was an exalted position. He was a rabbi. And so all his men looked up to him. And he says there, If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. This is the epitome of servant leadership. Humble servant leadership. He says, I am the leader. I am your teacher. I am your Lord and your master. And yet I'm doing things so that you'll understand what leadership, what masculine leadership in God's economy looks like. It is servant leadership. It is not self-aggrandizement. In fact, Peter, of course, who was present when this occurred, he'll say later in his first epistle, chapter 5, when he speaks to other men, leaders, elders in the church, he says, guys, you can't be in this church leadership for what you get out of it. That's not what shepherding the flock is about. It's for the benefit of others. And he learned that from Jesus here. Jesus' leadership was a servant leadership. John 10, verse 11, Jesus said there, I am the good shepherd. You know, shepherds were the leaders of the flocks. 
The sheep were there, in a sense, for their benefit. And yet when Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, I'm the leader of the flock, he then says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Again, even though he's there to lead, he says his leadership takes the form of laying his own life down for the benefit of those he's leading. In Ephesians 5, a well-known passage related to marriage, husbands are told to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ himself was the head of the church. He was the leader of the church. And the leader lays down his life for those he was leading. And so leaders are called to be out front. They're given responsibility to lead. And yet you see when Jesus exemplifies masculine the best, the highest form of leadership, it's not only humble, but it's for the benefit of those he's leading. It's not self-serving. This is a huge thing. Sometimes when we get a position of authority, especially I think as men, we tend to think that that's there for our benefit. And this is the opposite of what you see in Christ's masculinity. He says, I'm there as the servant of all. I am the leader. I am your Lord. And I'm going to display God's kind of masculine leadership because I'm going to be the servant of everyone here. That's a flip on the way the world sees masculinity or male strength. The last one, John 19, 26 and 27, I'm struck by. Picture, Jesus is hanging on the cross. He's nailed to the cross. He's been whipped and beaten. He's been spit on. He's had a crown of thorns on his head. It's difficult for him to breathe. He's dying. He's moments away from death. And what does he do? He says to John, you see this woman? My mom, you take care of her. I mean, one of his last acts on the earth before he dies is to make sure his mom's taken care of. I love this. Even in the end, in his pain, as a servant leader, he made sure Mary, his mother, had a household in which she was welcome and provided for. So even there at the end, with the weight of the world on his shoulders, bearing the sins of the world, Jesus is still acting in this role of a masculine leader providing for the needs of those around him. This is, a, this is mind-blowing to me. There's a great uh, part of the story, the horse and his boy, when King Loon is speaking to Kor. Do you know this story, Jess? And this is what he says about a king in, in his day. In this story, Lewis speaking through King Loon said, this is what it means to be a king, the, the leader of all, right? It means to be the first in every desperate attack the last in every desperate retreat, and when there's hunger in the land to wear finer clothes and laugh louder over scantier meals than any man in your land. That the king, this, you know, this guy with all the glory, all the honor, he says, well, no, not quite. You, you've got to be the servant of others. You've got to see everything you do as an example for those you're leading. There's another example, too. Uh, if you've read the book or seen the movie, uh, We Were Soldiers, great movie, uh, inspiring uh, movie, inspiring story. I think I've shared this before, but uh, Lieutenant Colonel Hal Moore of the U.S. Army is this guy who is in the early days of Vietnam when the United States is just beginning to enter the war with our own personnel. Uh, His is going to be some of the first uh, cavalry in, the guys who are going to be deposited by helicopter in enemy-held territory. And there's a great scene in the movie where they're on a football field there on the camp and uh, he is addressing his men before they go on the field of battle. 
And among other things, he says this, when we go into battle, I will be the first to step foot on the field and I will be the last to step off and I will leave no one behind. So here's their leader. And he didn't, in the movie, I don't know if this was true in real life, his superiors are trying to get him out. Things go so bad so fast that they're trying to preserve his life by getting him out. And he, he won't go out. He made a promise to those he led. And he said, I'll be there in front of you. I'll be there behind you. And we'll leave no one behind. And that is Christ's kind of servant leadership. You follow a guy like this anywhere. Because he, you know he's committed to you and your welfare. This sounds a little bit like John eighteen nine. Where Jesus said to the Father, of those whom you have given me, I've lost not one. Lord, those men you gave me, they're here. They're safe. I took care of them. God's kind of masculine leadership is there for the benefit of others. We'll leave no one behind. We're going to be there for you. I'll lead you in and I'll get you out. I love this kind of example of Christ's masculinity. The last example I'll give you this morning, again, I'm sure you'd think of a lot of others, but is power under restraint. Power under restraint. Uh, Men, as far as the sexes go, men are the stronger of the men and women, aren't they? Men have a physical strength greater than women. Jesus had masculine physical strength on one hand, but of course he also had the power available to him as God the Son on earth. And yet you see this power, this real power, restrained, sometimes used when God wanted him to, but other times restrained and hidden, if you will. Sometimes his power was just used for him to endure what was going on. So, for instance, related to the use of his real power, Luke 8, 24, Jesus commands the winds and the waves, and they they just stop. So Jesus had the power, if he wanted to use it at any time, he could just speak to the elements and they'd obey his word. Luke 8, 24. Or in Matthew 8, 16 and 17, it says that Jesus healed every kind of disease. He spoke or he touched people and everyone he addressed in this manner was healed of any physical infirmity. That's real power. We put all the pharmaceutical companies out of business. Every malady, every infirmity, Christ could heal by his word or by his touch. In John 11, you know, more than that, Jesus calls a guy by name that's dead, and the dead guy gets up and gets out of his tomb and lives again. He has the power over life and death. Jesus had real power. And you, you see glimpses of it or flashes of it in the gospel accounts, but you don't see him using it sort of willy-nilly in any way that just served his own small purposes. It generally was was hidden or it was subdued. Jesus said in John ten eighteen of his life, No one has taken it from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up. Jesus says, If I don't want to die, no one can kill me. I will die one day, but I'll do it by my own power, by my own will. And human agency, of course, will be involved, but no one could take my life from me. I have the power to hold my life in my own hand. You can't take that from me. I can only lay it down. And I love in Matthew 26, when Jesus is being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, and his disciples love him, and they don't want to see this happen, and they've got a couple swords, right? And they pull out the swords against all these armed guards, which was really courageous of them. I, I tip my hat to them. They loved 
their Lord and they want to help him if they can. But what does Jesus say? Guys, put them away. If I appeal to my father, he'll send the armies of heaven down here to fight for me. You don't need to pull those swords. If I need swords, I've got them. I've got a lot of them, you know. I think it's over 70,000 angels if I want. Snap my fingers and they'd be here to defend me. So Jesus had power. Absolutely no question. In his humanity, he still had divine power. And you see it flashed in a few occasions, but generally you see it subdued. You don't see it used. Generally, you see his power restrained and often or sometimes his power was just there to help him endure or to help others endure. So, for instance, in Matthew eleven twenty nine, Jesus brings an image of strength and power when he says to others, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Because I'm gentle, I'm humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. Now, in their farming community, if you were training a young ox, you put the big old ox with him. And the big old ox had that wood over his back, that yoke. And that's how you train the young one. The big guy bore all the weight, all the load, while the young guy's walking along beside him. And Jesus says, I'm like the old ox. I'll carry the weight. I'll carry your load. You just walk with me. It'll be okay. I'll lend you my strength. And last, in Isaiah 50, uh, you've got these passages in Isaiah about Israel's Messiah, and some are called the suffering servant passages. This is one of them. And in it, Isaiah, again prophesying of Christ hundreds of years later, says this. This is as if Jesus was speaking. Uh, Yahweh has opened my ear, and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. Does this graphically display for you uh, the uh, torture Christ endured before the crucifixion? And when I read this, I think of the movie The Passion of the Christ when you see... Uh, the character playing Jim Caviezel, I think, uh, being whipped and bloodied and beaten. Well, that's Isaiah 50. And Jesus' strength there was just to endure. I think they overplay this in the movie. They have the character of Christ rise up again as if he's taunting them for more. I, I, I doubt if that happened. But the point was, Jesus says, I'm using my power simply to endure the punishment being afflicted me on others. There's a great, somewhat more modern uh, story or version of this. I think most of you have probably heard of Jim Elliott. His wife Elizabeth, of course, had written a book, and, and uh, he's been well-known for a long time. You guys know the story is that Jim Elliott and these other friends and committed Christians in the States wanted to reach the Aqua tribe of Indians in Ecuador, South America. And they were, they were known to be very hostile. They were known that the gospel had never been presented to them. And so they were going to go down and share Christ with these Indians in South America. And this was a lengthy project and process just to get all the wheels going, to get down there physically, to try to find the Indians, to make contact with them. They, they had this initial contact and they were thrilled. 
And they're ready to finally go meet the Indians and begin this dialogue so that they can present the gospel to them. So they've had this initial contact. Five of them get in their little plane and they fly down and they land their plane on a little sandy spot of the river there where the aquas are. And sure enough, the Indians are there to meet them. And so these young missionaries, they've spent a good part of their life preparing for this moment. And of course, when they get out, the Indians they've come to save murder them, murder all five of them, get their spears out and kill all of them on the spot. I knew this for a long time, but what I did not know was these missionaries were armed. Did you guys know that? They had guns with them. And they had said amongst each other they would not use their guns to defend their lives against the Indians they'd come to share Christ with. And in fact, one of them, the guy at the plane, was shooting his gun in the air trying to scare them away. These guys had the power, the ability to harm or to kill the men that killed them. And they chose not to use it. Now, on one hand, I'm a husband and a father, and I say, that's a tough call. That's a tough call. We might question them. They left widows behind. They left kids behind without dads. They left, you know, they were brothers. They were sons, husbands, fathers. But in the overarching scheme of things, they had said, and Jim Elliott had said repeatedly, that his life and his blood were Christ's and that he was determined to share Christ with others in this world for God's honor. And they were ready to die if need be. And so you see the same thing that you see we've got power, but we subdue it for a larger purpose. And of course, over time, the men who killed these missionaries themselves became Christians and came to Christ, which was their goal all along, which was their goal. So power subdued for a greater purpose. When I think of the ultimate display of masculinity... Uh, I don't think it gets any more masculine, any, any greater display of God's kind of masculinity than Christ on the cross. And just think of the epitome of all of this. If, if God's idea of masculinity is revealed in humility, Jesus on the cross is the epitome of humility. It's the lowest spot he could take, hung between heaven and earth, naked, exposed to everyone's shame and ridicule. That was it. It was the lowest form he could take. The lowest place he could take was hanging on the cross. Masculinity expressed in humility. It was also, he was leading to bless. If you read in Hebrews, it says, Jesus is the captain of our faith or the file leader. He's the one that, like uh, Colonel Moore, who goes before us. Well, his hanging on the cross was Christ becoming the captain of our faith by paying for our sins, rising from the dead, so that we could be saved. So as he hangs on the cross, he's our leader there to bless us and save us. That's the reason he's on the cross. And power under restraint. Can you imagine if you're Jesus hanging on the cross and the people who've lied about you, the religious leaders, who on their end of things have got you nailed to this cross, they're standing beneath you and they're mocking you. And they're telling you, if you'll just come down from the cross, if you'll display a little flash of that power you say you have, just bring yourself down from the cross and we'll believe in you. Just show us a little of that good stuff and we'll believe in you. That would be tempting. And Jesus doesn't do it. Even though he could have used his power to come down, he doesn't because he knows he's accomplishing God's greater purpose by dying, by subduing his power. The abilities he could have used to save himself, he doesn't. Christ on the cross is the epitome of God's kind of masculinity. 
I have known men, Christian men, who were in no way masculine in the ways I tend to think of masculine figures, uh, low voice, you know, strong physique, etc. But who by Christ's example of masculinity were God's kind of men. And guys, especially when you hear the term a man's man, or when you're thinking about masculinity in the future, I would just challenge you to think about Christ as the example of your kind, your example, what you are moving to as you consider Christ's call to you in your uniquely masculine or male role. That Jesus being the epitome of that, what does that look like for me? What elements do I need to take on in my life to resemble his kind of masculinity? If you, uh, <clears throat> if you look in the mirror and you say as a guy that I'm not what I should be, I'm not God's kind of man yet, or there's these areas in my life in which I know I'm not God's kind of man yet, let me encourage you, do not beat yourself up. If you feel challenged, that's a good thing. But I would just encourage you to do this. Just make it your focus, make it your aim to just look at Christ, see in Him your example, and just, I'm not sure how else to say it, just look at Christ. There's a great verse in Isaiah 51.1 when God's talking to Israel and he's, he's talking to them about pursuing righteousness again. And he says this, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, who seek Yahweh. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Uh, Jesus was a man on the earth like you and I. He is the rock from which we were dug. He's the quarry from which our masculinity springs, if you will. And God there in Isaiah 51 says, look back to where you came from. So look back to Christ. You see the same thing in 2 Corinthians 3.18 when Paul talks about this transformation process as Christians. It's like looking in the mirror. And the longer we look, the more we see our own reflection bearing Christ's reflection. So guys, if you look in the mirror and you say, I'm not seeing Christ the way I think I'm supposed to reflect his image, keep looking. Because he's in the process of transforming you, your humanity, and your masculinity more and more into his image. Also, gals and kids, if you look at the men in your life, fathers, brothers, cousins, whatever, and you say, you know, man, they fall short of Christ's kind of masculinity. You know, I would just encourage you to pray that God would be reforming them in his own image. Uh, don't nag. Scripture talks elsewhere about this. Don't nag, don't complain. But pray for them that God would be at work to reproduce Christ's kind of masculinity in them. And also that they would see that themselves. They would feel that appeal and that call. They themselves would desire to see Christ's kind of mac- masculinity in their own lives. So, guys, we may or we may not have the world's kind of masculinity. That's sort of beside the point. We can bear Christ's kind of masculinity. Humility, leading to serve others, subduing rights or powers or privilege we might otherwise use, but we're not because we want to honor God and we want to bless those around us. Let's pray. Father, you are the ultimate... um, male figure, certainly in all the universe, uh, you say in Ephesians 3 that it's from your uh, name, Father, that every family on earth derives its essential nature or character. Lord, it is so important for us as Christian men 
to have a sense of what manhood looks like and what it doesn't look like. Lord, help us to embrace Christ's kind of manliness. Help us to have the kind of courage and strength that your son had on the earth. Help us to lead in all the ways you've called us to lead. Help us to do that humbly as he did and to your honor as he did. Lord, help us to have that spirit of how more that we will go before and we will follow after and we will leave no one behind. Lord, on Father's Day, I pray especially that you'd give the dads here a sense of your benediction, your blessing, your pleasure in them and on them. And that you would like the ox figure in Matthew's gospel that each one of us would have a sense of being teamed up with your son, of learning our way as we learn him. Lord, thanks for your design to bless us and the world in the masculinity that's represented in Christ. We give you ourselves in his name. Amen.